The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. It's good to be with you, as always, and uh, it's a privilege to be here and to open God's Word with you again. So turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would. Isaiah 6, I appreciate Dean Porcella reading uh, the 96th Psalm as a kind of preparation for this chapter, this rich chapter uh, of narrative and uh, this rich chapter introducing the book of Isaiah. But turn to Isaiah 6. I want to read this beginning in verse 1 and going all the way through verse 13. Isaiah chapter 6. And remember, as I, as I read and as you follow along, this is, this is God's word that we're hearing. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together in your name and to hear from you. We freely confess that if you had not revealed yourself to us in and through your word, we would be in the dark, but your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we know that we need your word to convict us of sin and to train us in righteousness and to thoroughly equip us for every good work. And those are exactly the things that your word does. So we ask this morning for the ministry of your spirit, a powerful ministry of your spirit. We ask that you would work through your word. And we ask most of all that you would glorify your son. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. 
One of the peculiar features of this chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, I know it's a very familiar chapter, but one of the peculiar features of this chapter is that it comes where it does in the book of Isaiah. If you think about it for a minute, this is the call of Isaiah. This is the time in which the Lord confronts Isaiah with himself in his majesty and commissions Isaiah to go and preach to the people. So, so there's a sense in which we could say this is, this is day one of Isaiah's formal ministry, and yet it comes here in chapter 6, not in chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah. And so that should introduce all kinds of questions in our mind. Why is it that this chapter isn't Isaiah chapter 1? And I think when we begin to ask that question and look more closely at the text, we can begin to see why it's placed where it is in the book of Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, you see that the beginning of the book of Isaiah actually doesn't have to do with the call of Isaiah, although it indicates that it's from Isaiah. But it doesn't have to do with the call of Isaiah, but it has to do with the, the preaching ministry that Isaiah is going to have amidst the people, and particularly the message that Isaiah is going to bring to the people. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 1 and look at that message, the message is fairly clear. What Isaiah is going to preach to the people is that the people, even though outwardly things seem to be going well, and even though outwardly they are engaged in all kinds of religious behavior, yet inwardly the Lord says their heart is far from me. And as a matter of fact, I hate all their religious sacrifices. The Lord says this in Isaiah chapter 1, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands to me in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. So, so you see, the context of Isaiah's ministry is a context in, context in which the people were outwardly engaged in all kinds of religious behavior. They were going to the temple. They were doing the things they were supposed to do. They were even praying. And yet, their prayers and their temple service and their worship was an abomination to the Lord. It's a wake-up call, really, for any of us. Because you can read Isaiah chapter 1 and you can see yourself in Isaiah chapter 1. You can see a situation that might occur in our own lives where the Lord might say to us, yes, you, you pray, yes, you sing, yes, you show up on Sunday. I hate all of it. It's an abomination to me. And your prayers, your many prayers, I, I, I've, I've stopped listening to those prayers. So the situation in which the people found themselves and the situation in which Isaiah was called to minister was a situation in which there was outward religious observance. There was an outward concern. They were checking off the box that said, we are worshipers of Yahweh. And yet, they had ceased to understand who the Lord was. 
Now, more than that, there's another clue in Isaiah 6.1. Because right at the beginning of this passage, Isaiah is giving us a little uh, marker of the time in which this takes place. He says this, in the year that King Uzziah died. So we know a little bit about the people because of reading Isaiah chapter 1, but what about this King Uzziah? Well, in order to understand who King Uzziah was, you actually have to go back to the book of 2 Chronicles. And when you read 2 Chronicles, what you find out is that King Uzziah was in many ways a very good and godly king. As a matter of fact, if you were to list out sort of the top five most godly kings in Israel and Judah, Uzziah very well might make the list. It says that he devoted himself to the fear of God and he sought the Lord. He sought the Lord for many, many years in his reign. And it says that when he sought the Lord, the Lord caused him to prosper. And it talks about the ways in which the Lord caused him to prosper. But then, but then it says this about Uzziah. It says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. That's really one of the great hazards we can face in life. We think that the hazards we face all come about when we're weak. But actually, biblically speaking, we have more to worry about when we're strong than when we're weak. When Uzziah grew strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. And what he did in particular was this. Uzziah, at a certain point, far into his reign, after being blessed by the Lord and pleasing the Lord in many ways, far into his reign, what Uzziah did was he decided in his strength that he was going to go into the temple and offer incense before the Lord. Now, that was contrary to the Lord's instructions. And what happened was, when Isaiah went into the presence of the Lord to offer incense, the Lord struck him immediately with leprosy, and he lived with that skin disease for the rest of his life. So I say all that to say, the background context of this chapter, of Isaiah chapter 6, is this. Isaiah was ministering among a people who outwardly had religious observance, yet knew nothing of who God was. And and Isaiah was ministering right on the heels of a king who in many ways was a godly man, yet ultimately took the things of God lightly. Now, could that be said of us today? Would it be said of us that we are people who fear the Lord treat the things of God with the weight that they deserve? Or would we fit more neatly into the description of Isaiah chapter 1? Or maybe the description of King Uzziah? Well, it's in that context that Isaiah has this vision of God. And here's how it's described. It's described as the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe, filling the temple. And then we see this description of these seraphim, these angelic messengers with six wings and with two of their wings, they covered their faces because they couldn't look at the Lord. And with two, they covered their feet, covering their, their, their shame in some respects. And then in two, with two, they're flying and they're singing to each other antiphonally in the presence of the Lord. And what they're singing is this in verse 3. It says, they called to one another and they said, Holy, 
holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, you know this from your study of the Bible. You know that sometimes in the Bible, there will be this kind of intensification that takes place when something is repeated. So you think about Jesus. When Jesus is speaking, uh, many times he'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. There's a sense in which he didn't need to say any of that. We know that he was speaking the truth, but he says, truly, I say to you. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, to intensify what it is that he's saying. But here we have this threefold intensification of this attribute of God. You know, it's the only attribute of God that appears this way in Scripture. It doesn't say in the Bible, love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. It could, but it doesn't. But here we have this, and we see it again in that heavenly vision in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that's appropriate because God's holiness is the attribute of God that is most commonly expressed in the Scripture. In fact, oftentimes, that attribute of holiness is added on to other things that are said about the Lord. So it will talk about the love of God, but sometimes the Bible will talk about the holy love of God. Or the wrath of God, but it's the holy wrath of God. Because there's a sense in which the one thing you have to understand about the Lord, if you understand nothing else about Him, is that He is holy, holy, holy. Now what does that mean? It's, it's a kind of absolute purity that sets Him apart from anything or anyone else. You think God's like you? No. God is holy, holy, holy. You think God is like the creation? No. He's holy, holy, holy. And this is so significant that it qualifies everything we say about Him. It shows Him to be the unique one, the majestic one. In fact, isn't this exactly what Moses says after being rescued through the Red Sea? You are the one who is majestic in holiness. And frequently the Bible will talk in these terms. It will say, don't don't think God is like you. Uh, Don't think God is like a man. God God is holy. And, And even when giving ethical instructions... The Bible frequently says things like this. This is repeated over and over again in the law. That because you're God's people, you need to be holy as I am holy. It's this distinctness, this this sense of being set apart utterly from His creation. And, And everything that is in God's service is set apart in just the same way. Of course, it goes without saying, God's holiness sets him apart from all that is sinful. You are holy and you cannot approve of any evil thing, the Bible tells us. The Bible says because God is holy, the plans of evil people are an abomination to him because because he's a holy God. God's holiness requires that his people be holy, that everything in his service be holy, that everything that is used to describe him be described thinking in terms of his holiness. He is holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. Now, if, if we are in any way 
like Uzziah, or probably more likely if we are in any way like the people described in Isaiah chapter 1. This is precisely what we have forgotten and precisely what we need to be reminded of, the holiness of God. And, And there is a sense in which you can't even begin to talk about God, to speak of Him, to think about any of His other attributes if you don't understand that He is holy. So this is why Isaiah is confronted with this reality. This is why the seraphim continually say to each other these words, God is holy, holy, holy. But you note that that's not all that they say in verse 3. They do say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And, And that might lead us to think that because God is holy, because he is different, because he is distinct from his creation, in ways that we can't even grasp. Because of this, therefore, we can have no knowledge of God. But look at what it says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and and the whole earth is full of his glory. Isn't this exactly what the psalmist says? The psalmist said, the heavens declare, they, they shout forth the glory of God. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His divine power has been clearly seen. So that that men are all without excuse. Why is that? It's because the whole earth is full of the glory of this holy God. You know, you have people that you meet, and perhaps this thought has crossed your mind as well, that say something like, well, if only, if only God would provide me with a sign, if only he would give me some additional piece of evidence. Now, now first of all, of course, that's, that's a, a misunderstanding of the holiness of God. He owes us nothing. But, but, but secondly, it's a misunderstanding of what is declared here and what is repeatedly declared in the Lord's presence, which is that not only is he holy, but the entire earth is full of the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So this holy God is a God who has declared himself, who has made known his glory to all of creation, to all people in his created work. That's that's the God we're talking about here. And so when Isaiah is confronting the people, He's not confronting people who lack evidence. He's not confronting people whose circumstances make it a little hard for them to relate to God. No, he is confronting people who have, as Paul says, suppressed this truth that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. Calvin said this, the earth, think about creation, the earth is like a giant theater. And we are like ones who walk through the theater wearing blindfolds. Uh, We can't see what is clearly displayed in front of us, and that is the glory of God which is displayed in the whole earth. Now, this is, of course, a mind-blowing experience for Isaiah, and it gets even more intense in verse 4 because not only does he hear this declaration, but it says all the thresholds shook and the house was filled with smoke as all this was going on. And, and Isaiah's response 
is a striking and an appropriate response. And, and I would submit to you that this kind of response is the kind of response you see in the Bible when people actually begin to understand the holiness of God. I'm very struck by the fact that when people speak of intense spiritual experiences that they have, oftentimes they'll describe it like this, you know, I just felt feeling so warm, I left feeling so warm, so charged up, so energized, felt so good about myself. You know, when people encounter God in His holiness in the Bible, they never say that. You see what Isaiah says? What Isaiah says is actually very pregnant with meaning because for a prophet, a prophet really had two modes. He was either pronouncing blessing or he was pronouncing woe. And look at what he says here. Look at what mode he goes into. Woe. Woe is me. And why is that? He says, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when Isaiah begins to, to scratch the surface of the holiness of God, and then when he looks at himself, what he sees is all of his uncleanness, all of his sin. He sees that great distance between himself and this thrice holy Lord of hosts. And I think this is the mark of people who have actually encountered the living God. The mark of people who have actually encountered the living God as they recognize their own sinfulness immediately. Uh, the Lord didn't have to explain to Isaiah his sin. He didn't have to point out to Isaiah. He didn't have to argue with Isaiah about his sin. Isaiah immediately knew when he was confronted with God's holiness, that he himself was a sinner. He was undone. He was ruined. And he says that not only does he have unclean lips, but he dwells among a people of unclean lips. And I think this is perhaps the second great truth that this chapter brings to our attention. The holiness of God, who he is, but also the status of human beings. Isaiah is clear about his own status he knows that he is unclean before that holy God, but he also knows that all those people with whom he is spending his time are similarly unclean. He says, my lips are unclean, and when I look around, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And that, that indictment against the people and against himself continues on when we see the Lord's commission of Isaiah. Because what the Lord says when he finally commissions Isaiah is he says, Isaiah, these are people who not only have unclean lips, but they have hardened hearts. These are people who do not understand, and in fact, your preaching ministry is going to cause them to understand even less. These are people who do not perceive, and the more you show them, the less they'll see. These are people, he says, whose hearts are dull, and when they encounter the word of God spoken from your lips, their hearts will become even more dull. It's hard to escape the fact that in Isaiah 6, Isaiah confesses and hears a great indictment against humanity. Against himself, of course, but against all the other people among whom he's going to minister. And you know, it's interesting, of course, because lest you think that these people were particularly wicked, 
And they were particularly worthy of this kind of description. What we find, of course, in the ministry of Jesus is that this passage is quoted again and again and again and alluded to again and again and again. And it's alluded to in the context of Jesus saying, that's exactly what I'm facing right now. I'm facing that kind of dullness of heart, blindness of the eyes, deafness of the ears. And I wonder, I wonder if we had this kind of vision today, if we were given this kind of description today, what, what the Lord would say about our condition as a people. Hardened hearts, perhaps. People who know very little of the holiness of God. People who think very highly of themselves, uh, but very little of the Lord enthroned in holiness. So then the question is, how is the Lord going to work in the midst of all of this? He is holy. People are sinful. And so what is it that he's going to do? Well, first, what he does, of course, is he ministers directly to Isaiah. We see this in verse 6. Isaiah recognizes that he has unclean lips, and he knows there's nothing he can do about it. It, It's interesting to note that Isaiah doesn't say, I'll try to do better. Uh, Next time, I'll try to speak more clearly and, and, and not have this uncleanness pass through my mouth. But he doesn't even bother to say that. Isaiah recognizes that he needs the Lord to do something radical in his life. And that's exactly what happens in verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, he says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What does God do in the midst of this kind of failure to understand his holiness, this kind of uncleanness, this kind of hardness of heart? What the Lord does is he cleanses Isaiah through a work of atonement. Look at this. Your guilt is taken away, Isaiah. Your sin is atoned for. He's the one who has to do it. He's the only one who can do it. I'm convinced that when people begin to think that somehow through their own efforts, through their own good works, through their own status, through their own family background, if people begin to think that they can save themselves, they've never even begun to encounter the holiness of God. Because Isaiah knows when he hears about God's holiness that the only person who can do something for him, is God himself. And it has to be a work in which God takes his guilt away and God atones for his sin. But you know, that's not all that God does in this context. God does provide atonement. God does take away this sin of Isaiah. But then, of course, God sends Isaiah. Isaiah can't help but respond to the Lord when he says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah, of course, says, here am I, send me. But then what the Lord tells Isaiah is, Isaiah, what you need to do is you need to preach the truth to this people. And notice this, you need to preach the truth even when it is rejected. Have you ever thought about this pattern in the Bible? Remember that little phrase Jesus uses in John chapter 8? He says this, Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He doesn't say, I'm telling you the truth and you still don't believe me. He says, no, it's because I'm telling you the truth that you don't believe me. 
And that's exactly the ministry Isaiah has amidst these people. Isaiah, you're going to tell them the truth. And because you're going to tell them the truth, they will not respond. They won't believe you. you know, this is actually fairly common in the Bible. Did you know that? It's fairly common for prophets to be commissioned and to be commissioned in situations where the Lord tells them, you need to preach the truth no matter what, and people are not going to believe you. How's that for advice? How's that for a commission? You need to go out into the world, and you need to tell the truth to people. And because you tell them the truth, they won't listen. Well, that's what happened to Jesus. This may be the kind of life that many of us are called to. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble. And we do know that the Apostle Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And with Isaiah, he tells him very clearly, you're going to preach the truth, and they're not going to listen to you. In fact, what's going to happen is they're going to be more hardened in their sin. They're going to rely on their religious observances. They're going to rely on the fact that things seem to be going well. They're not going to worry about the trouble you're predicting. They're going to ignore you. And in ignoring you, they're ultimately ignoring me. But that's not the only thing that the Lord gives Isaiah. He atones for his sin. He gives him this message to preach the truth even when it's rejected. But then there is this little hint at the end of hope. And it comes in the midst of a great message of judgment. The Lord basically says, Isaiah, you're going to have to keep preaching this message. People are going to reject you. And Isaiah says, how long do I have to do that? And the Lord says, you have to do it until they all get carried away in judgment. And there are going to be about 10% left in the land. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and destroy that 10%. But then, after that, he says in verse 13, Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And then he says this, the holy seed is its stump. And if you read a little further in this section of Isaiah, it's not in chapter 6, it's a little bit later in chapters 10 and 11. If you read a little later, what you realize is that holy seed about which he speaks is described this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In the midst of Isaiah's preaching of truth and the rejection of the people, Isaiah is given this word of hope, and it's a word of hope that points us directly to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do we see when we pull all of this together? Well, I would say there are a few things that we see very clearly. First of all, there's nothing so transformative as an understanding of God's utter holiness. That's really the catalyst for everything that happens in this chapter. And I would suggest to you this is what is missing today in our preaching, in our worship, in our study of the Bible, in our lives, in our relationships any understanding at all of the holiness of God. We don't fear God, and we don't consider God to be holy. I wonder what it would look like for us to actually absorb these truths into our lives. And when we do, of course, when we encounter this holiness, we know 
that we need help outside of ourselves. It can't come from within us. It's got to be something that the Lord himself does. Our hope, this text tells us, our only hope comes in the atoning work and ultimately the perfect obedience of that holy seed, that righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, in a sense, that brings us full circle because not only does the New Testament tell us that that holy seed has come and he does offer forgiveness of sins to those who believe in his name, he does offer a new heart and a new life and an atoning sacrifice. But not only that, you know what the New Testament calls him among other things? Well, James refers to him as the Lord of hosts. It's exactly what Isaiah sees in the beginning of this chapter. The Lord of hosts seated on the throne. So from beginning to end, whether it's being confronted with the holiness of God, confronted with our own sinfulness and need for atonement, or looking for this promised Messiah in Isaiah, what we see is that it centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of hosts the King of glory, the Alpha and the Omega, the Holy One of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for this vision of your holiness, which we cannot adequately comprehend. We ask that you would impress it upon us by your Holy Spirit. Change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.